Church, as we continue to worship, will you take your Bible and turn with me to the final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, the second chapter this morning. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. As we continue in a series entitled, Dear Church, the Seven Churches of Revelation. Before I read our passage that is before us, I'd be remiss to not say that this past week the sanctuary was full of preschoolers and elementary school children, over a thousand children that were here for Kid Life. And that was made possible through the faithful work and leadership of Brooke Gibson and Donna Allen, Daniel Bell and Meg Brown, and also of you. So I want to thank you for so faithfully praying for Kid Life Week, uh, for faithfully serving. Uh, we had 1,500 people in total on our campus, which meant that was 500 volunteers, an absolutely astounding number of people who were here serving in a variety of ways so that the gospel so, could be so clearly proclaimed and presented to all that were there and that we as a church had the opportunity to be a light in this community and beyond. So thank you. Revelation chapter 2 verses 1 through 7. Last week we started this series where John exiled on the island of Patmos has a vision of the ascended and resurrected Lord Jesus. And in all of his glory, he fixes his eyes upon him, but he is not there to just see him and gaze upon him. He is to write down a word from him to seven churches that are in Western Turkey today, uh, modern uh, or ancient Asia Minor then. So these seven churches were seven churches that were addressed to uh, from Jesus to them. And the first address here is to the church at Ephesus. And we pick up in verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toll, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary, but, but I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans. I'm going to tell you, that's a lot of vowels in there. I have had the hardest time with that word. Those people that you see right there, that's who I'm talking about, which I also hate. Verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So, so each of these weeks, we're going to be staring into the mirror of these letters to the specific churches. And what we do is, is we see areas that we resemble the churches, but we also see areas that we need to grow and, and that we're commended. So we see strengths and growth areas as we gaze upon the word of the Lord to these churches then that is also a word to us now. 
First letter is written to the first church. The church is Ephesus. It's a straight sail 60 miles from where John was exiled at Patmos, right there to Ephesus. I told you last week, we saw a, a, a geography lesson there. Ephesus is that first church that's on the bend of that horseshoe right there. It's a, sort of a crooked horseshoe. And so he's writing to Ephesus first because it's probably the closest church that he can get to. Not that it's his favorite church. It's not necessarily it's the largest or the wealthiest by any stretch of the imagination here, but it's the closest in proximity. It's the leading city of the region. It was called the metropolis of Asia. We have a tendency toward what some people call chronological snobbery, where we just sort of think that things in the past were always small and insignificant. Anytime we have an idea of biblical places, sometimes we, we correlate them to out of the way, dusty, removed, remote, insignificant places. And, and, and we kind of think of, of, of biblical places like that, but you'd be far removed from the actual place of Ephesus. Ephesus was a leading, bustling port city of the day. It, it, it was a leading uh, trade route that got you to Asia from Rome, went through Ephesus, leading port city. If you were able to go back in time and walk through the, the streets of Ephesus, you're going to go to one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, which was the temple to Diana, the god of fertility. It took them 221 years to build this temple, this temple of paganism and spiritualism that wrapped up these people. There were also other worship centers to the Roman uh, emperors of the time that they deified. So this is a place that is filled with quote-unquote religion. Uh, this is a city that is bustling with spiritualism. Uh, first century estimates, 250,000 residents of Ephesus, which means Ephesus then is bigger than the city of Birmingham now. So this is an important city, a vital city. It is a city full of spiritualism, absent in many ways of the gospel, and praise God that there were faithful Christians, a minority of Christians, that were meeting most likely in house churches scattered across Ephesus, trying to be bold witnesses. This church is a church where you can read this afternoon of Paul's missionary journeys in Acts chapter 19 and 20. You know the famous epistle that he wrote to who? To the Ephesians writing to these Christians here, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, written uh, to Ephesus there where Timothy was. You have, you have uh, 1 Corinthians. He's writing 1 Corinthians from Ephesus, Paul was. Uh, ancient tradition, history tells us that John, who wrote the Revelation, is writing uh, most likely, um, he, he had, excuse me, the ancient tradition tells us John at one time had been situated and was serving in Ephesus before he's exiled to Patmos. So we have our bearings here. Let's jump into verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write what? The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Jesus has chosen not to leave to us uh, an, our imagination what any of this means. In Revelation 1, verse 20, he tells us interpretively what the clues are. He says the seven golden lampstands, they're the seven churches. He tells us the seven stars in Revelation 1, verse 20, they're the seven angels that he writes to. So the picture that we have is, is here's Jesus walking in the midst of these seven churches. 
He knows them intimately. He cares for them deeply. There there is nothing that they're experiencing that he doesn't know about. And that was really glorious news, especially in that first century world. There were many of these Christians that would have lost their livelihood, ostracized because of their faith. They would have known friends and family members that had lost their life because of, of the faithfulness to the gospel. And so to hear Jesus has not left you alone. He is with you and he intimately cares for you. He knows you well enough to commend what is good about the church. And that's what we see. He, he commends the church. So you see this in verses 2 through 3, the con, uh, commendation from the Lord. There are nine positive statements that Jesus gives to the church at Ephesus, followed by one, one mark that is negative that he has against them. So look with me. In verse 2, you see, I know your works. He says, I know your toll. I know your patient endurance. He comes back to this theme in verse 3. He says, you're enduring patiently and you're bearing up for my name's sake. You've not grown weary. So this is a church that Jesus commends for their good deeds. This is a church that knows what it is to work. This is a church that knows what it is to serve. This is a church that has a legacy of faithfulness and seeing a need and meeting a need and being found faithful in the midst of it. Uh, This is a church, you know, I'm making this up here, but you get the point. This is a church that had a waiting list for nursery volunteers. Uh, this is a church that they advertise for an all-night lock-in for middle schoolers, and they have to shoo all the volunteers away. Everybody wants to be there. You get the point. This is a church that is faithful in serving. And it's not just serving in the good times. They've had to walk through a patient endurance. They've had, to, they've had to serve him faithfully in the midst of hardships here. And Jesus is able to commend them for their good deeds. Aren't you thankful that Jesus still sees and he still observes and he still sees the faithfulness of Christians even today? I, I will come up on my five-year anniversary as your pastor in a few months. And, and one of the things is the under-shepherd of this church that I see that is such a faithful part of the legacy of this congregation is the good deeds of this church. The, the faithful way that men and women serve in so many ways. This last week is just uh, emblematic of, of what is a, a larger thread that's in the midst of this church. You had hundreds upon hundreds of people that were volunteering for Kid Life. Uh, hundreds of people did not have children that were at Kid Life. Hundreds did. But they heard the call and they served. This last week, I was uh, Thursday night or Friday night at the ball fields, and there was a family that came up to me, and they don't attend Dawson, but their children attended Kid Life, and, and she and her husband were just glowing with thanksgiving at the, at the wonderful experience that their children had. And, and the wife's and mom's observation to me was, David, what is so impressive to me about that week was, is when we would walk up into the children's building, the Arendelle building, we'd be and she didn't know the name for the high five guys, but she had all of these men that were greeting their children and greeting the uh, participants and their families, giving them high five. And then you walk in and, and you, see, you see dad serving, you walk in and you see mom serving, you walk in and you see teenagers who are in high school serving, you walk in and you see middle schoolers that are serving. And what she was saying was, is I could just look around and I could just see the beauty of the intergenerational nature of this church. And I said, you're exactly right. 
This is one of, the, one of the thread lines of faithfulness in this church that I'm able to see day in and day out is men and women who, who step up to serve. They step up to serve in life groups. They step up to serve in, in, in ministry teams that we have in the life of this church. They step up and serve as they beautifully lead us through choral gifts and through our orchestra. And we could just go on and on with the faithfulness that is found in women and men in the life of this church who, without fanfare, without clapping, just faithfully do the work of the ministry day in and day out. And I I say, as Jesus says, I see these good works. I know your works. So Jesus commends their good deeds. And we as a church and, and many churches, if not all churches, can be able to look out and see the good deeds of the faithfulness of the body of Christ in the midst. But also Jesus commends their doctrinal discernment. There's not just the good deeds and good works, but also, did you see this in verse 2? I cannot bear those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and I found them to be false. And again in verse 6, you hate the work. Now, who this person is maybe goes back to Acts chapter 6. Nicholas of Antioch was one of the original deacons. Do you remember there was a controversy there in Jerusalem? How they were going to care for the Hebraic widows and the Grecian widows? And so the apostles of the day, they appointed seven, which is sort of the original deacons. And one of those was Nicholas of Antioch. And it might be that his followers decades down the road had gotten off the, the, the straight and narrow path and had gone the way of doctrinal error. But we cannot know that for sure. We, we do not have enough information to know exactly who these people are, but that's okay. The main things of Scripture are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. And this is not a plain thing, nor is it a main thing. But this is what's plain about this passage here. There are those who are pretenders. There are those who are actors and and coming before the church and saying, I'm an apostle. This is a messenger of the Lord. And they're saying, the Lord has told me to tell you this. The Lord has said this. But these Christians in Ephesus, they they knew the sound of the voice of Jesus close enough. They, They knew the aroma of Christ close enough that in their past and at times in their present, this church in Ephesus could say, no, I know I hear that you're saying you're from the Lord, but what you're saying is not of the Lord. And boy, there, there is no doubt that that word, that, that word of doctrinal discernment is a word that wasn't just needed 2,000 years ago, but it is a word that is needed today in 2022. Not, not everything that you read that says, thus saith the Lord is from the Lord. Not everything that you see on social media that, that proclaims to be the message of the gospel and the message of the word of God, that when we compare it to the actual word of God, the standard, that there can be those things that go above and beyond and fall short. But as Christians, the way that we discern that is our intimacy with Jesus in such a way that we know his voice And we know the aroma of Christ. So when things come before us, we say, yeah, I I hear what you're saying, but that seems to be in in direct contradiction of the word. It seems to be, it goes goes afield to the left or to the right from the witness of the church for 2,000 years. And so there are those who say, thus saith the Lord, that even today, as it was then, are not from the Lord. And we'd be wise to heed 
What Jesus is commending to that church 2,000 years ago, he commends their doctrinal discernment. So the conjunction of choice is and 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 in verses 2 through 3. He says, you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. I know you're told you're patient endurance. There's and, and there's and. And then in verse 4, there's an abrupt halt. He moves from commending them to a complaint from the Lord that we read with the conjunction, but, but I have this against you. That you've abandoned the love that you had at first. Jesus said, you've been a church that's been known for your good deeds. You've been a church that is known for your doctrinal discernment. But guess what? You've abandoned what is essential. You've abandoned the, the main ingredient, the love of God. As Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 22, what's the greatest commandment to love God with all your heart? your soul, your mind, to love your neighbor as yourself. So to a church is to love God vertically and to love the community horizontally. And, and if you don't love the community, you're really not loving God. And if you don't love God, you won't love the community. And this church at Ephesus is missing the main ingredient, the very fuel that empowers the mission of God in our world as we are called to be a sweet aroma of Christ and, and the flavor, the smell is the smell of love. And Jesus says, you have done well, but this I have against you. Boy, what a sobering word to hear. Because this is a church that had a rich legacy. This is a church that has much to commend. But something that is essential has been lost in the midst of all of that activity. They are missing an intimacy with God in the midst of all of their busyness. There is not a communion with God. There are things that are being done. But the main thing is missing in the midst of this. And that is an absence of the love of God. Recently, I was driving back from preaching in Gadsden at an at a event there, and I was coming back, and I realized sort of abruptly that I was almost out of gas. My mom was just in a variety of different places. I pulled off the interstate really quickly, came to this huge gas station that I knew uh, you know, would be a great place to stop at here. And so as I drove up to the gas station pumps, I realized as I got there that there were a bunch of plastic bags over that set of pumps. And then I went and just kind of wheeled around to another set, some more plastic bags. And I went to the other and there's more plastic bags and in the midst of all of the supply chain issues they had completely run out of gas I could have gotten $500 worth of Snickers if I wanted to but I couldn't get what I needed which was gas I could have gotten all of the Coke Zeros that I wanted to but I didn't even have the main thing that they're advertising this is the price of gas right here and every person can see and you pull off and they didn't have it now don't miss the point of what I'm saying here The point is that gas station is missing what is essential, which is the fuel that is needed to empower each and every vehicle that goes forward and is the church of Jesus Christ. From a distance, the lights can be on, a lot can be going on. There's a variety of programs. But if we run out of the gas that fuels all that we do, the gas of love, then we are missing the main thing. And so Jesus says here, I can commend you for past doctrinal discernment. I can commend you for good deeds. But this is the complaint I have against you. But aren't you thankful that this doesn't stop at verse 4? 
Because that would leave us hope. I mean, they, they've missed the main thing. But what Jesus is doing here is a great physician. He is calling them back to him. So there's a command from the Lord that we see in verse 5. Do you notice that? This is the remedy. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Repent. And do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. What's the word that's repeated here in verse 5? Do you see it? Can you circle it? Can you underline it? It's a word repeated two times, and it's a word that you're going to rarely hear outside of the church. Unfortunately, in the year 2022, it is a word that's rarely said inside the church. Repent. Repent. This is a word to turn around. Well, Jesus, how do we turn around? Well, he tells us first, remember and return. So to turn around, sometimes you have to look behind to where you were, that place where you were joyously affectionate to Jesus. When you pursued him with all your heart, when you loved him in a deep way and you loved others well. So, so look back and remember those times in your life where there was a deep communion with him in his word, a deep dependency upon him in prayer. Look back when there were times where you were serving him faithfully. And Jesus is saying, look back so you can go forward. There's a wrong type of looking back for a Christian and a church. There can be a, a nostalgic living in the glory days of a Christian's life or a church's life that is not healthy for the forward pursuit of Jesus in the present. You remember that song? The great hymn writer, Bruce Springsteen. I'm sorry. Okay, you know who I'm talking about? Glory days. A few decades ago, he writes this song that is a song about a person going back to their high school and they meet, with a, they meet up with a, a high school cheerleader and they also meet up with the high school baseball star. And all the conversations are just reveling in the glory days of the past. But the problem was they had not moved forward into the present. They were living in the glory days. And that can happen spiritually for you and me. That can happen spiritually for us as a church. Where the past glory days... Well, the only thing that we hold on to without looking back at the glory days to inspire us to move forward in our Christian pursuits, sometimes to go forward, you have to go back. This can be true in a marriage. It's not always willful sin. It's not always. Sometimes uh, those deep relationships that we have with friends, family members, neglect can creep in. A lot of good things that we give our lives to, our work, the building of a home, raising children. But you can get down the road, years down the road, and realize that there's a coldness that has, a, that has emerged in this vital relationship. And sometimes maybe with the help of a good godly Christian counselor, or sometimes with the help of a pastor, or sometimes with just good friends, or just the Spirit of God working, you, sometimes you have to say, hey, what were the things that we did years ago or decades ago that built this wonderful foundation of intimacy and love? We fell in love with one another. What journey was that like? 
What did we do in that moment that, that, that was these wonderful things, the, the dates that we went on and the, and the conversations that we had long into the night, the time that we spent together gathered around these hobbies, maybe for us to go forward, we got to go back. And that can not just happen in, in an important relationship between the husband and wife, but that can happen in the most vital of our relationships, the relationship that we have with the Lord. Maybe there's a time in your life where you can look back and you say, there, there were times where I was much more consistent in the reading of God's Word. There were times in my life I was much more faithful on my knees in prayer. There were times in my life in the past that I could look back and see my love and vigor for the serving and doing the things of the Lord, it was much stronger than it is now. And so we look back now with nostalgia to pat ourselves on the back to say, boy, those were the good glory days. But no, to say, hey, let's look back and those things that built this, this white, hot love for Jesus, we recover those and then we move forward. Or else. Notice that Jesus says, repent or be removed. I've already previewed this, but this is the word that is said two times in verse 5. Repent. It's a biblical word. It's a word that we sort of need to dust off, pull off the shelf, and use often in our own life, in my life, in your life, in our life. It's a word that is, a, is an image. It's a word that just means turn around. Do you know that? That you can go in the wrong direction? That spiritually you can get off course? And the direction that you're traveling in, maybe out of neglect or, or downright disobedience, can take you in a direction where the destination is not your good nor the glory of God. And Jesus loves you this much to tell you the hard thing, turn around. Very few people have an appetite for that today. We live in a culture that wants to say everything you think and everything that you do and everything that you say is grand and awesome. And here's a trophy for your effort. And you are the best ever. And Jesus says, hey, listen, I love you enough to tell you that the direction that you are going in will not lead to your good nor to the glory of God. Turn around. If you told me this afternoon that you're going to go see the Braves play and you're going to make a 5 o'clock first pitch and you say, I'm going to get on I-20, 2059, and I'm going to head west and I'm going to get there at 5, no matter what you think about that, no matter how much you believe that that's the right direction, no matter when you get to Tuscaloosa and you say, I'm about an hour away, no matter how passionate you are, you can travel and travel and you're not going to get to where you think you're going. And spiritually, there are times in our life that we are wrong. And we're not pursuing the things of the word of God, but we're pursuing the things of the world. And Jesus loves you enough to say, no matter how far you've traveled in the wrong direction, it's never too late for you to turn around and to come back home to him. Or he says, if you don't do this, I'm going to come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now he's talking to individual Christians that make up a church here. And this, these are sobering words. 
we're going through family devotions, and we got to this, and one of my sons said, oh, good luck with saying that before the church right there. I mean, they're strong words, aren't they? And you feel that in this moment. But what Jesus is saying is, here's a church that's got good deeds, and this is a church that's got doctrinal discernment, but you've lost your love for me, and I'm pulling my lampstand. Now, what he's saying in this moment here is a warning that no church is secure. No church has this permanent position in this world. And a church can go through the programs. It can go through having the lights on and having a congregation that congregates and ministers that minister. But one thing that can be absent is the spirit of the living God. And I pray that would never be the case in a church that we love so dearly right here. And I know that's your heartbeat also. But do not think that that hasn't happened and do not think that cannot happen. And we think immediately of of big cathedrals in Europe that were filled hundreds of years ago with with bustling congregations that that are just empty vestiges that are really just tourist attractions. That comes to mind. But even closer to home, we can think of of churches that are now commercial real estate and condos, and and, and those come to mind. But I I don't know if that's that's what's most sobering about this. What's more sobering is is the church has got the lights on and is paying the bills and has got weekly services, but the lampstand has been removed, and they don't even notice the difference. Don't even notice the difference. Jesus says, we can gather and the spirit of the living God be absent. And so we say, may it never be so. And so it will not be so. Jesus says, I'm giving you a spiritual checkup. We go for our annual checkup. Sometimes a loving physician, she will look at us or he will look at us and will tell us things that we like to hear. And sometimes will tell us things that are hard to hear. And so Jesus is the great physician who says, have you lost your first love out of neglect? Have you lost your first love out of outright rebellion? Have you lost your first love because you're captivated by the things of this world? Have there been times where you're more faithful to me, more consistent with me in the word and prayer, more faithful in serving me? Hey, look back, remember that, and guess what? Get busy turning around and following me today. You know why all of us need to hear that this morning? Because every one of us, me first and foremost, I am prone to wander and you are too. We all are prone to leave the Lord, the God that we love. But aren't you grateful that we have a a great shepherd who pursues us and walks in the midst of his lampstands and will go after the one and leave the 99 to find the one who is wandering from the fold of God and bring her home, bring him home. He loves us enough to tell us this in his very word. Let us pray.